Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. James Altucher with the James Altucher Show, and I am here with my co-host, Aaron Brabham. James, it's great to be back. Man, I got to tell you, the feedback's just been ridiculous for your podcast. People are loving it. I'm loving it as well. So who do you have this week for your guest? Aaron, I have Matthew Berry. He's the ESPN Senior Analyst of Fantasy Sports, which just blows my mind that I get to talk to him because he's he's completely created a career for himself. This career did not exist, uh, an analyst for fantasy sports. And yet, not only did he create this career, but he started off with my dream career. He was a writer on Hollywood movies and TV shows. He was a professional writer, you know, getting stuff produced. And uh, he quit that. He was miserable. After a string of successes, he quit that and started as a blogger in fantasy sports built up to the point where now he's got a million or so followers and you know he's the biggest guy in fantasy in the fantasy sports business an analyst for ESPN but I really want to mention he's also written an excellent book called The Fantasy Life and it's all about his career in fantasy sports I highly recommend people get the book I enjoyed it I don't know anything about sports but I like how he made this transition I like how he reinvented himself I liked how he created a career from scratch I learned from that, and I think the listeners can learn from that, and that's what we're going to talk about over this podcast. Well, great. Let's uh, let's not leave the uh, listeners hanging. Let's go ahead and jump right into the interview. Excellent. This is James Altucher with the James Altucher Show. I've got on the show one of my favorite guests, Matt Berry from ESPN. Matt, if you haven't heard of him, he's he, he does everything. He's been a Hollywood writer. He's been a fantasy sports writer, and now he's the top fantasy uh, columnist or anchor or whatever you call it at, at ESPN. Matt, what's your what's your title at ESPN? Uh, well, first off, um, it's Matthew, if you don't mind. Um, I, I, and don't I am uh, I am ESPN senior fantasy analyst. Okay, and you've also recently written the book, the you know Fantasy Life. Uh, trying to get the subtitle here. Fantasy Life, the outrageous, uplifting, and heartbreaking world of fantasy sports from the guy who's lived it. Uh, how's the book doing, Matt? Book did great. Um, still doing well. Thrilled with its response, James. It's been uh, just an unbelievable ride. It debuted at number five on the New York Times bestseller list, stayed there for two months uh, on the list, and um, continues to sell well. 
Um, it was uh, we actually my book company was shocked because it, it we actually got an uptick in sales around Christmas time and and the holidays. I think people thought, oh, this is it's a good gift, you know, um, for uh, for somebody for their dad, for their brother, for their coworker, for their wife, whoever, somebody that plays fantasy sports or wants to learn about it. Um, so that was pretty cool that for the five weeks leading up to the holidays, sales kept increasing and. Um, so, and we're looking forward to uh, to Father's Day and to the start of fantasy baseball season. So, um, uh, the book company's happy. I've been thrilled with not just the sales, obviously, but the response from people. People have been really, really kind in terms of their reviews and the you know the percentages on good re- uh, on good reads and the you know and the Amazon customer reviews. And you gave a nice review, James. Thank you very much. Uh, and Matthew, I love that your book is frequently bought together with uh, Ron Burgundy's book, Let Me Off at the Top, My Classy Life and Other Musings. That's what's on the Amazon page right now. I'm, uh, I'm very flattered by that. That's awesome. I'm a yeah. huge Ron Burgundy fan. So, uh, so, so Matthew, terrific. I know nothing about fantasy sports, but what really intrigued me about your story was how you basically went from what I would consider my dream job, which is to write for like Hollywood TV shows, Hollywood movies. You left that with no certainty at all in front of you. You took a job writing for a blog about fantasy sports, and you've transformed that into, you basically chose yourself. You created your own career in writing and talking about fantasy sports. And the kind of evolution of that is amazing to me. So maybe you can describe to the listeners, what was your Hollywood career like? How did that get started? What did you do there? Sure. I'm happy to. And yeah, I mean, I I think it's interesting. You know, last time we talked, we found that we had a lot of similarities and kind of similar paths, you know. um, Right, because I worked at HBO for many years before moving into my fantasy life, which was more internet and technology and starting businesses and so on. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, we both sort of uh uh sort of followed a different path that was uh, similar to each other. So to answer your question is, you know, I, listen, I went to Syracuse University. I um graduated there, moved out to Hollywood, wanted to be a screenwriter. Um got uh got a job, you know, as a PA, whatever, you know, answered phones and that kind of stuff for a couple of years and then when I was 24, I got a job. I was uh accepted into the uh the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, and they placed me on the show called Kirk, starring former teen heartthrob Kirk Cameron. Here's how long ago it was, James. The show, the network that that show aired on, the WB, no longer exists. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, we, Wait, does we, Kirk uh, Cameron exist? Our, huh? Does Kirk Cameron exist? Yes, he does. He's an unbelievably nice guy. I know people, you know. <laughs> Every once in a while, someone will ask me because you know he, uh, he's he's had some comments in the public about his religion and his thoughts that are uh, that come off fairly crazy. Um, in person, he's an, at least when I knew him, he was an unbelievably nice guy. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so then I just you know I started a string of working on working with really talented people. I wrote on Married with Children. It's probably my most well-known credit. And, and also, also that children, was the show that really launched Fox. I mean, Fox yeah. became a major network because of Married with Children, and so you could take full credit there. 
Well, I doubt that. I mean, we, we my right, I say we because I wrote with a partner, and we came on very late in the run. Married with Children Fox was already established by the time I showed up. So I don't want to take, uh, we can take credit for some funny episodes and lines, but uh, the success of that show happened well before we ever showed up. Um, but anyway, uh, so I wrote a Married with Children, and then after Married with Children, I started a string of working with really talented people on really terrible sitcoms. Uh, I worked with Diane English, who, you know, of course, created Murphy Brown. I worked with her on the show Inc. with Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. I worked with uh, Jimmy Burroughs, uh, the great director and executive producer guy. He, you know, he did Cheers. He did Will and Grace. He directed the pilot of Friends, um, Taxi. I mean, you know, he's a he's a legend. Um, and I worked with him on two shows called Union Square and then Conrad Bloom. Um, and huh, so, I think you know, remember you know, we, yeah, we worked Bloom, on a I show think. called Gary and Mike, which was a uh, claymation show, really funny that no one ever saw on UPN uh, with the with uh, uh, Fax Bar and Adam Small, the guys who uh, created Mad TV and did that show. So, again, really talented people just on uh, <laughs> on the show that they're not known for. Uh, and then we uh, we transitioned into movies at one point, and we wrote for we wrote a, a number of scripts for uh, big name stars or producers. And unfortunately, the only one that ever got made was uh, uh, I am the answer to a trivia question. Uh, I am the co-author of Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. And and so so what what was that movie about? Like what was that part? <laughs> that was, three, that part movie four? was about money. That movie was about me making money, selling out huge is what that movie was about. Um, yeah, I always say, listen, kids, if you're going to sell out, sell out big. Um, we got the we got the. We had just come off Union Square, actually, and the show had been canceled like in November. So the way Hollywood worked back then is sitcom writers weren't hired except for once a year, basically what was called staffing season in the spring. So we had like, you know, until March, nothing to do. And so our agent called us and said, do you guys want to get into movies, right? And we said, yeah. Um, and he says, well, you know, you know who Paul Hogan is? Of course. You ever seen Crocodile Z? Of course. He's like, well, Paul Hogan's a client here. He's a, uh, he wants to do a third installment of the franchise. He's meeting with writers to pitch him ideas of what it should be. I'm one of the agents in charge of putting writers in the room with him. If you want, I'll throw you guys on the list. And my writing partner and I are like, hey, screw it. Let's meet Paul Hogan. That'll be funny. Like, just, like it'll be a funny story. Like, and, you know, good practice. Like, we're not getting this job, obviously. We've never written a movie before. Um, but basically, we so we go in, and we... Uh, you know, we we watched the first two movies again. This is now 16 years after the second one, James. Right? So, um, and uh, anyway, so we go in and we basically say, like, look, the movies are what they are, right? It's just you reacting to stuff. Like, you know, they're not built for anything like that. And we knew that, you know, 16 years after the um, after the second one, you know, his sort of gentle humor wasn't playing anymore in terms of, like, the the big comedy at the time was something about Mary. So, like, R-rated, raunchy comedy was really in right then, and, you know, sort of the gentle the gentle comedy of, uh, of Mr. Hogan wasn't really uh, what was filling uh, seats in the theater. So we just basically said, like, the only chance this has is if it's a family movie that, you know, people who saw the first one can take their kids to. So we basically went and said, like, look, you did New York the first two times. Why don't you come to L.A.? Uh, you get a job at a movie studio as an animal trainer because, you know, you can talk to animals. Um, turns out there's some bad guys there, and you save the day. You've got a kid. You're, oh, that one of the rules of the movie was that he had to be with his wife. 
his real life wife who'd been in the movie with she had to be in the movie and it had to take place present day so we just like I'm just so curious you, why is that yeah. like was she worried he would fool around with the actress or do, why do people do that I suspect I, I never asked him that I, I suspect the reason is because he's married to this woman and you know the only movies she's ever starred in were the, his movies like you know he met her on the first one and he divorced Cause, his cause first wife I would wife. do that like if my wife was in a movie I wouldn't want her kissing another guy in the movie well, but that's that's the role of an actor, right? I mean, you have to sort of, you know, be confident enough. I know it's it's weird, but like that's why you shouldn't marry an actress. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you're not comfortable with that, I think it's probably like they're just sitting there. They're both, he's, he, you know, he's richer than. Uh, I think she's going to be like, well, wait, you're doing a movie and I'm not in the sequel. Like, yeah, I mean, so uh, I think that was more about marital harmony than uh, right. than really plot points. But whatever, she had to be in it, and it had to take place present day. That is 16 years. So anyway, that was the basic plot. And then we said, but mostly you're just walking around L.A. reacting to stuff. It's going to be, it'll be Beverly Hills Croc, you know? And you're you're with your kid. You you and the wife now have a little kid. He's like a little croc. And you decide you're going to show him around America because you know America. It's the blind leading the blind, and you're explaining stuff to him all wrong. And we're like, yeah, it's Crocodile D. We'll make it funny. Literally, that's the whole pitch. It was a little smoother than that, but that was basically the whole pitch. It was less than 10 minutes. And he's like, eh, you guys are the only ones who get me. You're hired. Which is my bad Paul Hogan accent. But um, we were like, what? Really? Like, <laughs> that half-ass thing we just did? You I know, wonder and- why other people were pitching him. Like, how could, like, how could yours have stood out so, so much? I think because people came in, what he told us later was that everyone else, like 30, he'd met with like 30 writers, and like everyone else came in with like, Crocodile D saves the world, Crocodile you know, in outer space, you know, disarms a nuclear dis- explosion. And he's just like, I think we're the only ones who maybe actually watched the movies before the pitch. And we were just like, the movies are what they are. It's just him reacting to stuff. It's little vignettes. It's just gentle humor. He's not the guy that drives the action. He reacts to stuff, which is an important just for writers. It's just an important sort of distinction, I think. So I think too many people tried to make him something that he wasn't, and we were the ones who just basically said, like, look, they are what they are. Like, it's just, you know, it's he reacting to stuff. So that's why I think. I think it's just because maybe we didn't try to oversell, and we just sort of said, like, you know, it is what it is, you know? If that makes any sense. Then he did the movie. Yeah, he did the movie. It, it got made. We made a lot of money for it. We had a whole hassle with him about writing credit later, which, you know, we I get into in the book. I talk about Paul Hogan, and I've talked about it uh, elsewhere as well. But um, anyway, so what, that was the plot, and we did a bunch of So that was my Hollywood career, and we wrote for, um, you know, we, we uh, you know, I wrote uh Let's see. I, I wrote an action comedy for The Rock. I wrote um, a romantic comedy for Hillary Swank. I wrote a. Did these get um, made or? or I'm sorry. Just none hired? of these are made. No, no. The only movie I ever got made was the was Crockett on D. Okay. But these were all projects that you know were contracted for and you know that we got paid for, et cetera. Et cetera. Do you get disappointed so, when you write a script and you imagine Hillary Swank playing this major role in it and? It doesn't get made at all, or do you just kind oh, of expect yeah. that? That one was brutal. The, the Hillary Swank one, was that was a real tough one, because we, we approached her first, and she liked the idea, and like we were talking with her people and her husband and, at the time, and you know every step of the way, we would get notes on it, get notes on it, um, like this, don't do this, don't do this, and then ultimately she just felt like she couldn't do a romantic comedy. 
you know, that she got Really? Chicks. I wonder why. Like, I feel she would have she would have been good at a, a romantic comedy. We, yeah, and we like the project quite a bit as well. We like the script and, um, you know, so I don't know. I don't want to get into trashing Hillary Swank. Um, it was not a good experience for me. I'll just leave it at that. Hmm. Um, Did you fall so, in love with her uh, a little bit, like when you were meeting her? I just, I'll just, I'll leave it at it was not a good experience for me. I did not right, enjoy. Fair enough. Uh, that, that I did not enjoy that entire project, and, and you know what that leads me to a, just sort of an overlying theme here, which is like um, uh, I didn't enjoy most of these experiences. That one was particularly tough. Nothing was worse than the Paul Hogan thing, but the Hillary Swank thing, that was a really tough one. Um, just sort of the way we were treated at the end um, by uh, by her and her company. And and so, you know, it, it was a really disillusion. We actually got a project we were working with, and I don't want to say who it was, but we, were, we got a project with two well-known comedy stars. And we were doing a rewrite of this, um, of this project. And one, we, met with, we met with both of them. But in the meeting, one of the comedy stars was sitting there lecturing us on what is funny and uh, giving us notes on the script, but also just sort of explaining what funny was. What, what was his definition of funny? Like, what was, what was his suggestion? Oh, uh, it, was, it was all fine. It was just like, it was real basic sort of stuff. And like, you know, in terms of like, see, that's the element of surprise. His, idea, his definition of funny was what he was funny at doing. If that makes any sense, like, yes. uh, you know, and I, again, I don't want to get into too much, but he he had a specific way. Like, if it were Paul Hogan, for example, it wasn't Paul Hogan, but if it were Paul Hogan, for example, he would say, "What's funny is something unexpected happens, and then I react to it, you know, because I'm expecting this, and I don't understand, you know, like." He would, and you'd be like, "All right, yes, that is one form of humor. There are many other types of humor, you know." And, right. You know, like, this isn't funny because of this, this, this. And you'd be like, no, you don't think it's funny because you can't pull that off. It, it, whatever. It, it, trust me when I tell you, it's a very boring exercise. But it was just basically basic, you know, in terms of, like, setup and joke, you know, funny thing. React. It was – I think I think trying to explain what is funny and why it's funny is one of the most pointless things ever in the universe. It's one of those things. You know it or – it's it's funny or it isn't. And things are funny to different people, and people react. Anyway, it was just annoying. And the point is, is, so I'm driving away, and I'm all annoyed about this. And then I think to myself, holy mackerel, like, Barry, like, if this, if this annoys you, you're never going to be happy. Like, this is a high-class problem. Like, this is, you're, you know, you're in a meeting with two movie stars, people that have had major, major success in motion pictures and television, but especially one of them was a huge movie star at the time, um, a comedy movie star. And you're like, here's a guy that, like, you know, he's sitting there giving you notes on your script, and yes, maybe he's doing it in a slightly condescending way, but whatever. He's, making, he's giving you scripts about the movie they want to make. Like, that's a high-class problem. That's a super high-class problem yeah, when a, I can when a comedy you, movie star like, wants to give you notes on the script that he's going to perform. And ninety percent of you know young America would love to be in that in that exactly. seat that you were sitting in. Of course. And so, James, the fact that I realized that I was like, "Whoa, wow!" I mean, how dare I be? Like, I should be jumping for joy. I should be thrilled, and I was, and I was miserable. And I just, it was really kind of a very, you know, a real clarity moment for me, where I was just like, "I've got to get out of this." Like, if this doesn't make me happy, nothing's ever going to make me happy. And, like, for the longest time I was unhappy, but I thought, like, well, if I could just – because I was working on these bad sitcoms. 
you know, then the Crocodile and D thing happened, and that was that was brutal. Boy, if I could just work on like hit shows, you know, like at the time, like if I could get on Friends or Raymond or Frasier or something like that, um, you know, those were sort of the the hit sitcoms when I, when I was around. And um, well, if I could just get on something like that, or like once I got into movies, like if I could just work on you know big A list movies, then I'd be happy. And then I started working on. Okay, maybe not A-list, but, you know, you're doing, working with a rock, working with Hilary Swank, working, you know, with other people. I work, you know, we did a, we did a romantic comedy for uh, a production company called Guy Walks Into a Bar, which is the company that did Elf, which, you know, which was Will Ferrell. So at the time, like, Elf had just come out the year before, so they were, like, the hottest producers in town. We were doing a romantic comedy for them. Like, I mean, so we were working on, like, with really good people, or at least really well-known people, and still I wasn't happy, so... It was sort of my moment where I'm just like, I got to get out of this. And so what happened? So, so what did you do? Did you stop writing completely? No, I mean, concurrently with this, and, you know, I talk about this some in the book, um, but uh, concurrently with this, I was doing fantasy sports. So I, I'm 44 years old. I've been playing fantasy sports since I was 14. Okay, and so in 1999, there was a website. Can you just describe to me, actually, what actually is fantasy sports? I mean, I know, and and by the way, I watched that TV show, The League, which you've appeared on, uh, which is a sitcom all about fantasy sports, but it's basically you pick your players, and then you you adjust the points of your team based on how the players are doing? Something like that. I mean, the simplest way to to describe it is that you you pick real-life athletes, okay? So, like... I might pick Tom Brady. You might pick Peyton Manning, right? You with me so far? Yes. For a fantasy football team. And how well those people do in their real-life NFL games is how well they do for your fantasy team. So, for example, if you and I are playing each other and you've got Peyton Manning and I've got Tom Brady, and on Sunday Tom Brady throws two touchdown passes and Peyton Manning throws three touchdown passes on Sunday, he's thrown three touchdown passes for your fantasy team as well. So you get six points for a touchdown. Um, so you would be beating me 18 to 12. It's, and so it's sort of that simple. Like and like you do it for you do it with running backs and wide receivers and you know tight ends, kickers, a, a team defense. Sometimes pl- some leagues play with individual defensive players. There's different kinds of scoring. You can have touchdowns be worth certain amounts and different amounts if you want. But um, but that's the basic concept of it. Is that and, and what's the crucial factor in being good at fantasy sports. So we all have the same information. Like, we can all guess, you know, Tom Brady has a better record than Peyton Manning, so I'm going to pick Tom Brady over Peyton Manning, or, or whatever the stats are. We all have access to the same information. What is kind of the critical factors that makes a, a good fantasy sports player? How you interpret that information. Yes, we all have access to the same information, although I would, ag- I would argue that we don't necessarily all have access to the same information. Um, we all have the ability to have access to the same information. just depends on how hard you want to research, how hard you want to dig, how, many, you know, how much you film and, and game film you want to watch. But ultimately, it's how you interpret that data, right? And so here's what I believe in the matchup. Here's, you know, talk about football now. Here's how I believe these players will play. And here's – so, yeah – in that case, you're right. All right, fine, Tom Brady. That's sort of it. But what if I've given you four wide receivers? If I've given you uh, Dwayne Bowe, uh, Emmanuel Sanders, Greg Jennings, and Tavon Austin. There's four sort of you know, low-end wide receivers from fantasy this year, according to wide receiver fours for people that are listening that play. Right? So now and you've got to start two of them. 
they're all basically sort of the same this year. They were all each of them had moments, right? So it's just it's basically looking at your roster and saying which two of these four do I want to start today, and trying to figure out that, and making right pickups and when do I do I drop this player? This player's underperforming. Do I drop this underperforming player after three weeks for this hot player, or will this guy turn it around? So it's it's not just about looking at the information; it's about how you interpret that information and use it to make decisions. It's kind of like uh, the stock market a little bit because yeah. again, it's it's one of those scenarios where. We all have the same basic information about Apple, but then how much you dig into, you know, lines at the Apple stores during Christmas and how much you dig into kind of, you know, what's going on in the Chinese factories and so on will give you that slight edge where uh, spread out across many stocks, that slight edge could add up to to better returns than the average person. That's correct. And it, and that's where you that's where you, you know, make your money or get wins or the, is in those margins those slight margins, those gray areas. You know, a little bit of luck helps as well, staying healthy, but also knowing, like, how to read, you know, injury reports. Like, what if you picked up Zach Stacy this year, if you were able to, you know, watch it and you're like, wow, this guy's a real, you know, a lot of people ignored Zach Stacy because the Rams running back situation was a mess and it's a bad team and their starting quarterback was hurt and their offensive line had been banged up and so people ignored Zach Stacy, but the people that watched that and knew Jeff Fisher's tendencies, he's the head coach, you know, basically said like, hey, I believe in Zach Stacy. This is somebody that I think is now getting an opportunity. This is a guy that was a great player in college. And yes, he started out slow, but, you know, just watching the eye test, he was a guy who was just like, I don't get it. Like Zach Stacy needs to be, you know, picked up ASAP, um, and you know, ended up having a, a monster year down the stretch. I see. So, so okay. So, so you're you're driving home after the comedy writers. You're disgusted with your life, the the best right. life in the world. And but you've been doing fantasy sports since you were 14. Right. But but here's an important part. So in 1999, I was getting this. Uh, 1999. There's a website called Roto World, and they were advertising for writers. Now, remember, this is 1999, James. This is, like, before, you know, this is CompuServe and AOL, and, like, you know, you dialed up to get your email, and you were online maybe once a day. You know, not like, to, you know, today, right? So it's hard for people to really imagine. Like, you didn't really – online was just sort of this weird little thing you did. It wasn't, like, a big deal at the time in 99. Right. But they were still advertising for – so they were, like, looking for fantasy writers. And I just wrote back, and I, I emailed them, and I said, hey – you know, I'm a professional writer living out here in Hollywood. Fantasy sports is my passion. I love it. I play it every, you know, I play multiple leagues and multiple sports. I think it would be a lot of fun. I think it would just be a cool side thing if I could write a column, you know. Can I try, you know, I'll do it for free. I just want to I just want to do it cuz I think it'd be fun. Like can I try out? Can I send you a sample? Anything. They write me back the next day and they said, "We looked you up on IMDb. Married with Children is our favorite show of all time. You're hired." So that's, that's great. How I got that. So, so I, so in um, around this time, so I, I started writing for that site and became pretty popular. I was quickly like their senior writer or anything like that. And I started doing. Uh, you appearances became pretty on the radio. popular probably because not only your knowledge of, of fantasy sports, but also you were a comedy writer. Like, do, do you see the combination of of how uh, your writing as having propelled you to be the top writer there? There's no question. There's no question about it. I, I think I'm a pretty good writer. Um, and 
there's no question about it. The, the skill level of, of a lot of the people, not all of them, because there were some good writers there, but not everyone there was a professional writer, and I think I'm a pretty good writer. And so that, there was no question that uh, not just the quality of my information, but how that information was presented was a big part of what I did. And, and I was also very different. I mean, we can, we, you know, I talked about this in the book as well, but I, uh, uh, you know, uh, th- my approach was... Um, very similar to, you know, I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. And so I, I sort of, I stole a lot from Howard. And, you know, In what way? What, I, what, did you, uh, what did you steal from him? There's a lot, actually. But, you know, one of the things I stole was the fact that I quickly realized reading a bunch of the fantasy uh, content that was out there was, like, just really dry. A lot of stats, very boring. And people would spend three, four paragraphs about one player, all these stats, blah, 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 blah. blah. And it was like, it was like reading a term paper. And I realized that, you know, honestly, in fantasy sports that most people, they want information, but they want it quickly. They want to be entertained. And they, a lot of times it's sort of confirmation bias. Fantasy is one of those things where everyone, similar to just general sports, everyone has an opinion, right? Tom Brady's overrated. Tom Brady's awesome. You know, everyone's got an opinion, and they're just looking for some confirmation bias there in terms of, like, I think Tom Brady's awesome. What does this guy think? I also think Tom Brady's awesome. Awesome. Or I don't like Tom Brady this week. What? This idiot? You know, they so, – so basically I decided that I wanted to be personality-driven. You know, one of the things that, that Howard sort of did was he decided that he was the most interesting uh, thing that he could discuss on the radio. So he's completely honest about himself, completely open about himself. He made it all about him. And so I sort of decided to take that same approach, that there was only – that when I got into fantasy sports writing, I'd been playing for a long time. I'm a pretty good writer. I'm pretty good with stats. I've watched tons of sports in my life. But honestly, listen, I'm not Bill James or Nate Silver. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a statistical genius, okay? I'm pretty good with stats, but again, I'm not one of those guys. And again, I've watched tons of sports. I've played fantasy sports forever, but I'm not like a former player. You know, I never played you know, pro football, you know, I'm not a former coach or scout. So there's certainly people out there that can look at film with a more trained eye than I can. Okay. What I realized was the one thing I could do better than anyone else, James, was talk about myself. That much I knew I could do. So I basically made every column about myself and I, I put a lot of pop culture and I put a lot of humor in it. And you know, when I would talk about a player, I would make it quick. I would get to the point, and instead of three boring paragraphs filled with stats, I would pick one or two good stats about the person and make the point, uh, and then move on quickly. And so I think uh, that style rubbed some people the wrong way, but other people really responded to it and enjoyed it. And um, you know, the calm quickly, quickly uh, became popular. So you know, it, it really goes along with my theory that. Uh you can't, you know, everybody always asks me, well, you know, how do I find my passion? But really, it's much better to find two or three passions and combine them. Because when you combine them, there's probably nobody else in the world who's combined all three of those passions and then really tried to become the best at that combination. So when you become the best at that combination and somebody recognizes it, you're instantly propelled to the top. So you combine basically, I'm sure you were always interested in like, you know, writing and writing comedy and writing for Hollywood. And then you became, you obviously were passionate from an early age about fantasy sports. And it's really this kind of intersection of them that propelled you to the top as opposed to one or the other. Without one, you could not have had the other. Uh, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I'm a big believer in, if you want to just sort of talk life advice here for a second, I'm a big believer in a couple of different things. I do want to talk life advice. 
Yeah, well, so one of them is play the hand you're dealt, right? I'm a big play the hand you're dealt guy. And so I'm looking at the hand I've been dealt. I'm a Hollywood screenwriter. I'm a former Hollywood screenwriter. So in everything I did, like, as opposed to try to go away from that, and I think a lot of people try to do that, like, I just embraced it. I owned it. This is who I am. This is what I do, you know. And so, you know, I used my Hollywood connections where I could in terms of interviews. Um, uh, and so another big thing is, is that, um, that I sort of thought to myself that I'm not a weird guy, Okay. When I was when I was getting early criticism for the column from people that weren't used to it because my style was completely different than anyone else that was ever doing it, uh, I basically said, you know what, I'm not a weird guy. Like I looked at the, the things that I like. Okay, I like pizza. I like rocks. You know, I like I like Bruce Springsteen. I like uh, I like Hollywood movies. Uh, I, I like superhero movies. I like Vegas. I like going to Vegas. You know, the the things that I like. You know, a lot of people like. It's not weird. I'm not like, I don't like really weird, obscure things. Like, I, I like I don't understand. That, were people calling you weird? Yeah. Was that criticism you were getting? That was, uh, I mean, I was getting self-centric. I was getting egocentric. I was getting, you know, getting all sorts of stuff. You know, but of course they would read me. You know, I still get one. I've been reading you for 10 years, and you've, you know, you keep sucking, Barry. You know, you're the worst. You've been reading me for 10 years? You know what I mean? Like, I literally get that if you see the columns on Inmate Comments or people like, you know, you know, you're even worse than you were three years ago. Like, you keep getting worse. I'm like, all right. But you keep reading and clicking and following me on Twitter. And Okay. I, I think this is a problem I have also. Like, people constantly will complain in the comments, and they'll be the same person all the time. And yeah. I'll even, you know, say to them or, or beg them, just don't read me. I'm going to make your life a lot better. Just stop reading me, and your life's going to be a lot better. They can't though. They love to. Ha they love to. You know, they they're unhappy hate. in their own lives, and it's a way for them to like. Uh, you know, get that that anger or frustration out. But anyway, one of the first things I did, and this is something. This is all, another trick from Howard. Is like so, especially back then. Some people now do this as well, but back then when I started, like a lot of people that were doing fantasy sports analysis, again, like you're trying to guess the future, right? I mean, you're trying to predict the future. So it's, you're not going to nail every single thing. Even if you have every stat and trend, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's a oblong ball made of leather. It's going to bounce weird sometimes. So um, the, most people in the industry, what they would do is they would print emails saying like, oh, great call on so-and-so, great call on so-and-so, and just basically pump them up. And and so I, I certainly did some of that, but the the biggest thing that I did was I started printing all the hate mail. Oh, I started printing, you know, like great call on this guy, you moron, and I'd print it, you know, and I would I would own up to my wrong predictions, and I would be like, you got me, that's right, yes, I screwed I, up there. I, made I would up. say so I would probably, constantly print the hate mail. I, I would say probably with maybe the exception of myself and one or two others, nobody has ever done that in the financial world. Like, so many people will tout their successes and ignore their failures, whereas I've, I've made a career out of uh, touting my failure. So, so yeah. it's, it's definitely a worthwhile exercise. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, and Howard would do that too. Howard would constantly read, you know, um, angry letters from, from listeners on the, on the air or play tape of people criticizing him. Uh, criticizing him. So, and it works. I mean, I think most people, are, most rational people understand that in trying to predict the future is fraught with problems, and all you're doing is making ultimately an educated guess. You're saying, here's what I think will happen, here's why I think that will happen, and we'll see. And I think as long as you have a sound 
backed up reason for why you think that will happen, um, I think most people are like, yeah, you know, it does. Fantasy sports is ultimately for fun. You're, you know, you're trying to predict the future, trying to do what you can, but it's not always going to work out. And, you know, I appreciate you admitting that you're human and not trying to act like you're better than anyone else or anything like that. So I think most people respond to that and like that. So, but anyway, so I was sort of like. Again, going back to sort of like, I don't think I'm weird. I think I'm fairly normal. I think the stuff I like is fairly mainstream. So I liked what I was doing. I thought what I was doing was interesting and fun and different. And and so I just sort of stuck with it. And, you know, again, my I knew my traffic was really good. And the, the, the people at the site were, you know, Roto World were like, you know, keep doing what you're doing. So ultimately in 2004, this is about the time people started to make real money on the Internet. You know, this is after the Internet bubble had burst and, you know, everyone was paper billionaires and then they were real, oh, there's no money there. But then in 2004, around that time, people started making actual money on the Internet. And I thought, well, maybe I should start my own website, you know. And so I had the idea for two different fantasy sports websites. Uh, one, TalentedMrRoto.com, which is my own website, which was um, what was my little nickname. And then one that's still in existence today called Rotopass.com. Uh, which was a portal site for a bunch of different fantasy sports websites, including Townsend Mr. Roto. And, and by portal site, so you, you, had you go on one site and you pay once and you're signed up for all the other fantasy sports sites. Correct. Correct. That's great. That's a great yeah. idea. Thank you. And in fact, if anyone would like a, uh, to anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you use the promo code James, J-M-E-S, I'll give you 10% off um, rotopass.com. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good resource. It includes ESPN Insider and a, a bunch of well-known fantasy sports sites. Um, so, anyway, uh, so this around the time that I was starting to get well. really disillusioned with Hollywood, and I had that meeting, and so um, basically I ultimately decided, I, I said to my writing partner, um, let's do one more project. I, I'll give you one more year. Um, and uh, once that year is over, I'm going to try to make a go of it in the fantasy sports space. I was so miserable, James. I was so depressed. I just, you know, I just, I hated a lot of the parts of my life. And to your point, like, on paper, wow, you're getting paid good money to write Hollywood movies, you're married, you know, all looks, you know, you're healthy, friends and family that love you, like, it seems like, everything should be great, right? And you have this side gig writing fantasy sports. That's kind of fun and cool. And like, and I was miserable, man. I was miserable. Like the only thing that really made me happy was my dumb little fantasy sports site that I had on the side. It's a, it's so, almost like people have to go back they have to go back in time and think, what is it at the age of 10 through 15 that you are truly passionate about? Because is there a way to translate that into an adult career? So like you were interested in fantasy sports, other people might have been interested in science fiction, other people right. might have been interested in, I don't know, outer space or technology. Um, but it seems like your, your passions, the seeds of passion sort of are, are, are planted in those early years. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way, but yeah. I mean, look, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, again, sort of like, you know, doing what you love. Life's too short. I I mean, I, I basically said, like, it, it, for me, it was like almost life-saving. 
But a lot of people don't know what they love. Like, for instance, if you went into a bookstore and someone said to you, uh, you have to read every single book in the sports section, you probably would say, okay. But if they said to you, you have to read every single book in the knitting section, you probably would say, oh, I can't, I can't do that. So, right. so it's almost like one, another test other than this kind of go back, you know, 40 years or 30 years or whatever, is what, what, what are you willing to, what, what part of the bookstore are you willing to read every single book in? Because I bet you probably have read a good chunk of the books in the sports section. I've read a lot. Certainly when I was a kid, I did. Um, I don't have as much time these days, but no doubt about it, that would, I'd be down with that. As opposed, you're, And you're right. Knitting would, would take me a while to get through that. Uh, so anyway, I was just miserable, man. I was just like so depressed. And I, I basically, I was, I'd been in therapy, and it took a lot of guts for me to basically say, like, I'm giving all this up. Like at the time, my website, I want to say, like, I think between the two websites, I had like 2,000 paying customers at this point. I mean, just, you know, nothing, not not anything you could make a living off of. Still, that's and, great, though. It's hard to get any paying customers. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd built up a pretty big following at that point, and the... Um, what were they paying per month? Um, it wasn't a monthly thing. Rotopass was a... Rotopass was $150 a year. Because it was like you got access to like six or seven websites, which if you bought them all separately would cost you three hundred dollars. So, I see, and then you then you paid the website some of that hundred fifty dollars. So I paid right the, of the one fifty. Like each of the websites got a cut of that, and I got a cut off the top. Correct. So that was that. And on Talents of Mr. Roto, um, it was fifty bucks for the year. Um, and you know, I I had other writers, and I had you know I had a cust I had a you know, a woman that was doing customer service for me, and I had, you know, hosting costs and everything like that. So I was in the black, you know, but I wasn't, you know, if that was my only source of income, I mean, it would have been like $10,000 a year or something like that, you know, after everything. That would have been worth a couple hundred million in the uh, dot-com. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, poor timing on my part. So uh, anyway, but I just, you know, so I didn't know that I was going to be able to support myself, but I had some money saved up from... Um, uh, from my Hollywood screenwriting career, and I just I just wanted to be happy. Ultimately, James, it's just like I couldn't do this anymore. So I, so basically, by the end of 2005, I was out of show business. Um, my wife and I separated, and ultimately got divorced. Um, can I can I ask about that? Like, I always say it's like a very simple thing. Oh, we got separated and divorced. And I, I'm divorced as well and remarried. What? Why? Um, why did you get separated? Like, how did it how did it happen? Did you just say suddenly, "Oh, I think I'm going to move out, and we should start moving towards divorce"? Like, or was it something, you know, no, was it really depressing? No, I, it was. We'd gone. We knew there were issues. We had gone to couples therapy. And we'd been in it for a while, and it was one of those things where we. I don't want to get too much into it, only because I don't care talking about it. But I I want to you know respect my ex wife, who sure. I I still care about. Um, but I will just say that we got into therapy. We had we had some fairly significant issues in terms of we got we got together very young. Like we started dating when I was 25 and she was 23, and we never you know once we started dating we never broke up or anything like that. So I mean like we basically I basically been married since I was 25 or um, at the time. So we got married very young, and now I'm like. Uh, you know, I was like 34, 35 when we split up. So, I mean, we just, I was a very different person, as was she, you know, in terms of like when we had kids or whether we had kids and, um, you know, or whether we spent, you know, years traveling and just we had some fundamental differences that just weren't neither right nor wrong, but in terms of what I wanted versus what she wanted. 
just like, you know, if one person wants kids and the other person doesn't, like, neither person is wrong, but it's just like, you're not going to go to, th- you know, you can't, that's not about communication or, or um, whatever, that's about two people at age 25, like, oh, yeah, we'll have kids someday, and then you get down to it, and you're like, hey, we should start thinking about this, and then the other person is like, hmm. So just, you know, there was just a number of issues like that where neither person was right nor wrong, and there wasn't anywhere to go, and we went to therapy, and the, the therapist was sort of like, um, yeah, I don't see any middle ground here. Like, one of you guys is just going to have to, you know, um, uh, just, you know, be unhappy, or you're going to have to split up basically, you know. Well, um, well it was of, also the, the fact that you were unhappy in your job. Did that play a role? Like, did I'm she sure enjoy your job? I'm sure and it did. Then, I mean, I think, I, think, um, I think I was probably really tough to live with there for, like, a year and a half. So, I, uh, you know, maybe longer, you'd have to ask her. But I, I think it was really, really tough. You know, I had, I had a couple of people in show business, and I mentioned this briefly in the book, but I had – I had a couple people in showbiz, and one guy in particular, do some really nasty, horrible things to me um, in terms of, uh, you know, really screwing me over and um, uh, taking advantage of, of my kindness. And, just and you know, one particular guy um, did something so horrific that uh, it cost me a couple million dollars and um, actually hurt my career. Uh, well, for about six you, I know you, maybe you can't. It sounds like you can't say the name, but can you describe a little more specifically what they did? Like I, I, I want to avoid having that happen to me. <laughs> I don't know. You can. It's a long story, but the 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 very short version of it is is that uh, we knew a writer that was out of work for a long time, and we helped the writer out in a big way. He'd written a spec pilot, which is a, a he'd written a pilot on. Um, without getting paid for it, basically, on his own. And he couldn't even get his agent to read it. And so, you know, my brother is actually, uh, at the time, was working for DreamWorks. And, um, you know, through him, I was able to get him a really high-powered agent. And we were able to get the, 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 uh, the spec sold. And uh, we sold it for like half a million. He, the agent did, actually. But this is a, a, a script that my writing partner and I worked on with this guy. And, uh, you know, did significant work on. Ended up selling from half a million dollars, ended up getting a pilot order, ended up going to series. Um, and all along, it was like, oh, we're going to get hired on this show. And we did a lot of work and we did a lot of, um, uh, you know, we, we came up with episodes for the future. We worked on the pilot. We were there, you know, for all those days shooting on the pilot, everything like that. And um, basically, uh, when it came time to staff the show, uh, he didn't want to put us on the show. Well, did he give a reason? Like, that sounds, well, that sounds no, really the, evil. It is fairly evil. It's not even the worst part of the story. What happened was is that another guy came on the show to help run the show. It was him and another guy. The other guy's also evil. But the other guy basically said, um, and I'll tell this story someday, but this isn't the right forum for it, but uh, like with names and everything like that, I'll tell it someday. But anyway, basically, so the, the new guy, who's also evil, but evil in a completely different way, he was just basically like, I want all my own guys, because ultimately his plan was to take the show over and kick off the original guy, oh. our friend. Anyway, so he basically says, like, I've heard bad things about these guys, you know, that we, we shouldn't hire, meaning my writing partner and I, I've heard bad things about him, we shouldn't hire him, because he wanted all of his own guys. Now, that's not true in terms of hearing bad things about us because we, my writing partner and I had been rehired by every single showrunner we've ever worked for. So meaning like everyone that's ever worked with us tried to work with us again. 
Right. We'd either been hired or gotten a job offer from every showrunner we'd ever worked for. Um, so, but regardless, even if that were quote unquote true that he'd gotten a bad report on us from somebody, our guy should have said, "I don't care what anyone else says. I've worked with these guys. I'm not here without these guys. You know, these guys did a ton of work. You know, the the best scene in the in the pilot." They wrote entirely. The highest testing scene in the pilot, they wrote entirely. You know, so that's what he should have said. Instead, what he said was, okay. He chickened out. He sort of sold us out. Well, I think a, a lot of people, he probably was at this pivotal point where he had been depressed for years. His, like you yep. said, his agent was looking at his stuff. And now finally right. someone's listening to him, uh, in in part thanks to you, but someone's right. listening to him. He probably was scared to death that, that this person was yes. going to say no. I think I think that's absolutely uh, correct. I think that's it's good insight. I think that he was very out scared. Of fear more I think than he believed that this guy, courage. who had a much bigger name than him, had the secret to like life's riches and you know was going to be able to make this show a hit and everything like that. And so, I think he was. I agree with you. I think he was probably scared and just you know meek guy and just didn't want to stand up for what was right. You know, and the fact is that without my writing partner, I he'd still be at home not getting his calls returned. Right. Um, but that's, again, not even the worst part of the series the story because there was another show uh, that was interested in us. And so after, the, after we find out that we're not getting a, an offer to go on this show, now we're scrambling. Now our agents are scrambling because we hadn't been going out on any meetings because we were always going to this show. We'd been promised a job, you know, and blah, 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 on this show. And this show. So we finally get a meeting with this, with this show. And... Um, uh, we meet with the show, and they're like, hey, we loved your spec script. We heard great things. We want to, like, hire you. But for all along, we were saying, like, uh, hey, can we get Barry and Abrams? That was uh, my writing partner on his name. Can we get Barry and Abrams? And we were like, the studio kept saying, no, 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 they're going on this other show. And so um, uh, so he's, and then, so we're in the meeting, and the guy says, so now you're suddenly available. What happened? And we're like, we don't know. We thought we were going on that show, too. I don't know, but we really like this show, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, so they call and ask for our quotes, which is a, usually a pretty good sign, at least at that time, like in terms of, like, they're really interested. You know, they're not calling for your quotes if, they don't, if they're not interested in hiring you. But they call over to our original guy, and they say, like, hey, why didn't um, – I think we made up some, you know, we didn't want to get all negative and bitter in the meeting. So I think we made up something like, we said something like, well, I don't know, it just didn't work out. They just didn't have the budget for us or whatever. Uh, you know, we don't know why. We wish them well sort of thing. But we're, you know, we're free agents. We'd love to come work on your show. So anyway, they call over to the original guy, our friend, and say, hey, why didn't you hire Barry and Abrams? You know, we were heard for a month that, you know, we couldn't get them because they were coming on your show. And now all of a sudden they're available. What happened? And instead of sitting there saying, hey, they're great, they didn't work out, blah, 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 at least trying to make it right, he basically says, well, he's too much of a coward to admit what he did. So he says, well, they didn't work out. He says, oh, we got tons of bad reports on them, blah, 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 you know, not good. And again, you're like, it shouldn't matter what you, anyone else has said. Like, dude, you've worked with us. You know, like, anyway, so, yeah, so, so basically he... string of, like, nonstop bad things that were happening in Hollywood. Correct. And so, anyway, that show that we didn't get because of, uh, ended up running for four years, and basically, had we been on that show, based on what our quote was, and assuming we got rehired, and like I said, every other show we'd ever been on, we'd been rehired, or the person in charge had tried to rehire us. So, um, I feel fairly confident that we would have been on the show all four years, based on what our quote was, how many episodes that show did, 
probably would have been about $3 million. Wow. So that's depressing. And had we never helped that guy, had we just, um, you know, minded our own business, and when that guy called us, we'd written on another show with him. Like, so we knew him from two different shows. When that guy called us and said, can you please help me out? I'm, you know, I'm like, you know, I need somebody to look at this, blah, blah, no one will return my calls, blah, blah. If we just said, sorry, we're too busy. He's still, he's still stuck in obscurity and, and not doing anything. And this show would have read our script, would have liked, you know, like everything that would have happened, and we would have been on that show, and there you go. Well, Matthew, so obviously nice it worked, it worked out, out for the best, though, because this kind of also was, was you know, sort of making you go towards this fantasy sports life. But at the same time, what other lesson can you learn from this? Like, or what can people learn? Like, is it possible to contractually do things after a certain point, or is it everything no, just sort of word I, of I mouth mean, in Hollywood? Welcome to Hollywood. There, you know, stop the presses. There's bad people in Hollywood that screw you over. You know, like it is what it is. I don't think there's. I mean, I think well, it like can be once you're once the agent started selling it, could you have contractually said, "Hey, we're getting a part of this," or no? I guess so. I mean, I guess we could have. Like, you know, people is do that this unusual? all the time, though. People do it do it as favors. Like, we didn't. I mean, look, if if somebody helped me significantly rewrite something that I ended up selling for half a million dollars, I would have done something for that person. I would have like given a very nice gift, you know, like right. I think he owed me a car, you know, <laughs> like honestly, um but uh but ultimately it is what it is, you know. I I mean, uh to your point, I some would argue that it's the best thing that ever happened to me because you're right. That combined with the that experience is what really soured me on television and then the you know, the, like I mentioned the moment of clarity with the the movie uh stars, like just all of it was just like I got to get out of this. Like I'm so dep- you know, like this, this business. I hate this business. And in I the meantime, it. now you're in year five, having the time of your life of uh, running two fantasy sports sites. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know that I was having the time of my life, but it was the only thing that were making me happy. It was the only thing that keeping me sane. So. Um, How many so hours per week I, at this point were you putting into your fantasy sports stuff? Tons, tons. I mean, I, and that's one of the reasons why. And, if you want to look at it, 2020 hindsight, in addition to the depression, in addition to having significant differences with my wife, just in terms of how we viewed uh, sort of things, um, you know, I was also like, so I'm doing my day job, which, you know, so I'm writing scripts during the day, and then at night, I'm online, I'm, you know, I'm writing the web, I'm running the websites, I'm sending emails, I'm writing my blog, I'm doing all these kind of things. So there were a number of nights, James, that my wife went to bed without me, and then I'd get into bed late at night, 12, 1, 2 a.m., She'd get up to go to work, and then I'm sleeping in, and just, like, we just didn't see each other, you know? And, like, so it was just, just you know, so we, we grew apart. And to answer your question, like, it was one of those things where I wanted, just to get back to your other question about in terms of what happened with us, I'd been thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, and I was all worried that um, I was going to tell her that I, you know, thought we should separate and that, you know, she was the whole stereotypical She's going to cling to my leg. No, don't leave me, you know. And, and so, you know, I was worried about that. And then so I somehow managed, I couldn't take it anymore, and I felt like I managed to, hey, you know, I, I don't think things are right with us. I wonder, I've been, I've been thinking, I wonder if we should get separated. And she was like, oh, my God, you too? Thank God. I mean, it was literally that, you know what I mean? Wow, you're like the luckiest man on the planet. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, it was just like this. And we were just like, really? And she's like, yes. And like, like we had this great moment where we were just like, I know. Like, and uh, it was like his huge weight was lifted off both of our shoulders. And we, 
Like, it was, like, super simple. Like, we had a, you know, I think you're awesome. I care about you deeply. Um, so this is why you titled the book right. Fantasy Life. And it was like we felt the exact same way. That, that's, that's amazing. Um, so yeah, no, no, no. I mean, friends have said it's like the most amicable divorce. I'm still friends with her. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we're good friends, you know. I mean, but we probably talk three or four times a year, something like that. You know, just catch up every, you know, shoot her an email or something like that, or she'll shoot me something if she sees something that reminds her of something. You know, so. Do you know. do, do you like uh, when she posts photos? Uh, when she posts photos with a new boyfriend on Facebook, do you hit Facebook like on those? I don't. I mean, we are Facebook friends. I don't check out her Facebook page. She's happily remarried now. I know that. I couldn't tell you what her husband looks like. Huh. Um, and But that's not for any, you know, that's not for me avoiding it or anything like that. I've met over the years. I mean, I met I met her, her longtime boyfriend prior to the current husband. I met, like, the, the serious boyfriend she dated after me, and then she's now remarried to a new guy. But, um... Uh, so that's it. That's only because, like, whatever I have, however, whatever, a couple thousand Facebook friends, and I mostly use Facebook for as sort of a fan page kind of thing. I don't use it, right. as, you know. I mostly post and interact with fans there, than than use it for, you know, checking up on seeing people's kids. I don't know, whatever. For I haven't like checked out her page, so I don't. It doesn't. Bo- it wouldn't bother me if I saw those photos, though. I want her to be happy. Like she's a good person. So, so you've so up to now you've lived this like dream life. You have this Hollywood experience, which, like any industry, really, you, there's going to be bad experiences and good experiences. But you had a string of bad experiences. Meanwhile, you found this alternative passion that you've been developing on the side, and now you have a clean slate. Like you're just kind of single on your own. Your time is your own, and you're ready to go. So, so this is this is the magic when things happen. Yeah. And so, so what, so what happened after that? basically i made a go of it i mean i basically i basically decided ultimately james in terms of two different things that i think are important um brand awareness and brand trust like my father is a customer service marketing genius guru um so marketing genius customer service everything like that and so i took a lot of lessons from my dad and howard stern those are the two people and so basically what i decided was a couple of things first off that I felt like there was a lot of sameness to fantasy analysis, right? There's only so many ways you can say, hey, Peyton Manning's good, Eli Manning isn't, or what have you. Um, so what I wanted to do to differentiate myself was what we talked about, was like sort of make everything about me and, and like just talk about me in depth and, and my life. And, you know, I talked about, I wrote about my divorce and everything and never hold anything back. And so, um, so I did that. So I wanted to do two things. I wanted to make people aware of, I wanted to first create the brand, the brand of, you know, Matthew Berry, Townsend, Mr. Roto, and then make people, so brand aware and then brand trust. So I want to make people aware of the brand and then brand trust, which is, okay, this is what I know I'm getting. Whenever I read a Matthew Berry article, when I go to Matthew's website, this is what I'm getting. And so people trust that brand, that they know what they can expect and that we deliver on that promise. And so... What happened is is that I basically went to every website I could find, every TV station I could find, every radio station I could find. I said, I will come on your air for free. I will write for your website for free. Just link back to my website. Just mention my website on the air. And I didn't care about making money. I basically said, you know what, I don't care. I'm just going to take it on the chin. Um, 
uh, here for a couple of years. I just want people to be aware of me. And so that's what I did. I just did, I just did a ton of that. We'll come back to brand trust in a second. But, and I, I just did that. And one of the first places I'd done it, um, a guy named Steve Mason, who currently hosts um, a radio show for ESPN 710, uh, 710 ESPN in Los Angeles, so our, our owned and operated station in L.A., but he used to be with Fox Sports Radio, and he was like an early fan of my column. And so I'd started, I'd been doing radio segments with Steve since 2002, back when I was with Roto World. And so around this time, Steve was over at ESPN, and Steve brought me over, and I started doing some fantasy football segments for him on the radio there. And then they wanted to do a fantasy football show. And so Ray, you know, uh, Steve was like to Ray, the, the program director at the time, like, hey, I, I got the guy. And so Steve got me into ESPN Radio in L.A., and I did that for a little while. And then from there, I met met a producer at Cold Pizza. If you remember that morning show, no. It was it's it's it was what used to be first. We call it first take now. But back in the day, it was supposedly it was our sort of it was ESPN's version of Good Morning America. Hmm. So it was called Cold Pizza, and it was a you know you know this is very important advice though because because I because it does apply to other industries. Like people yeah. always ask me, well, how do I get started blogging? How do I I have a blog? How do I drive traffic to it? And my answer is always blog. Keep on doing your blog, but also blog everywhere else but your blog. Like write, right. appear, do everything you can on like I don't know the Huffington Post or. Uh, you know, it, like for you, ESPN.com, like sites that actually where people will see you because no one's that excited to go to a, the blog of an unknown right. person. But if they, if you start having a unique voice on another site, then that's how you build. And, and then, and then I also have what I call the wall of sound approach. If you're everywhere, like if you're at ESPN and Fox and other sports sites and sports shows, and suddenly everywhere people turn, they see you. They'll know this is a trusted source that they can go to. That's correct. That's correct. And and so I think that's very good advice and just trying to get out there. Like like I always tell people that ask me about trying to get in the fantasy sports space. I'm like, "Do what I do." Like I went Roto World was one of the bigger fantasy sports sites and still is. Like one of the biggest pure fantasy sports sites out there, right? And so I went to somewhere where there was traffic and I built up a brand. I I didn't want to worry about let them worry about traffic. I just wanted to worry about building my own brand name and building, you know, and getting better at what I did. And so, you know, by the time I was ready to branch out on my own in 2004, I'd been there for four and a half years. I'd built up a pretty big following at that point. And now this is before Twitter and Facebook, which makes things a lot easier, um, you know, and, and Tumblr and every, every other kind right. of social media where you can build up a fan base on one of those, you know, or Instagram or something like that, where, where you can, you can also build up a following. But, yeah, a lot of it was like, yeah, go to where there's traffic and write for them. Like, be everywhere. And that, and that, yeah, you'll hit more people that way and interact with other people that have large followings. Like, I mean, I don't think you asked me on for this reason, but it's, you know, you're just starting up this podcast, and I have a pretty good Twitter following. So whenever this podcast is posted, you're going to send me a link, and I'm going to send out a link. I'm going to send out a tweet and a Facebook post, and I have whatever – close to a million social media followers between those two platforms. And so, there. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I remember the last time we spoke, and we did do the kind of tweet thing, uh, I, I, I remember the response of so many people who were surprised seeing you and I in the same tweet, just because yes. we have nothing to do with each other in <laughs> any other way. So, uh, except I'm just always fascinated by career reinvention and, and how successfully you've, you've, you've pulled it off. 
Well, thank you. It's a subject that fascinates me as well. I think it's one of the reasons we get along. But it's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, the the secrets aren't, you you know, they're not complex, but they take time. Like, you know, so I was writing every single night. And to your point, if you want to do that, you need to be blogging every night or what have you, you know, you know, just being a monster on Twitter or something like that, just like absolutely crushing it. It's, it's, it's not, a, it's not a tough secret, but it is, it is one that involves a lot of hard work. And I think it's interesting also that it's not just information that will drive you to the top, uh, unless you're like a Nate Silver or a Bill James, where you you're kind of have this almost like inside information from the statistics that you've crunched. But talking about your personal self, like your own trials and tribulations as you as you kind of make your way through, you know, let's say fantasy sports that week, that personal touch is what drives traffic. Like I know for myself, when people hear about like my failures in the financial world or, or successes or whatever, they want to hear what really happened. Not the BS that everybody talks about, but what really happens to to people in this in, in this world. Yeah, no, I think they do, and they connect with that. I mean, when I meet fans, and listen, I mean, it's it's when I meet fans, and we talk about columns and stuff like that, they'll say, like, I, and I've had some really good calls in my career in terms of, like, you know, Arian Foster before he broke out or that kind of stuff, and, like, people don't mention, like, oh, I loved it when you, you know, when no one had heard of Miles Austin and, you know, you were on TV saying, pick him up today, you know, when, when Roy Williams had been declared deactive and then he went off for 250 yards for two touchdowns and no one could get him anyway. You know, it's like, so people don't bring those calls up to me. What they bring up to me is like, I love the story about you and your father-in-law. I love the, the you know, the column about meeting your wife. I love the column about, you know, your dog. Or I love the column about, you know, getting into the car accident, you know, in the parking lot. Or, well, I mean, well, you know, you know like... How do, you, how do you reinvent that? Like, ultimately, you could only write so many stories about your, your life. Like, I've written probably close to a thousand blog posts about my own personal story. And at some point, you know, a memoir is not a million pages. Like, at some point, you run out of personal stories. Well, I think it's it's yeah. I mean, I don't always just write about me. Sometimes I'll write about well, you write about your childhood. You write about um, certain things that affect you. Something that's going on in the world. I will, uh, you know, like one of my favorite columns that I wrote last year. You know, this is gonna be like weird. So I wrote a column about. Remember, um, do you ever when you were a kid? I, I don't know how old you are. You might be a little younger than me, but do you ever read the Encyclopedia Brown books? Which books? Encyclopedia Brown. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. So I loved those as a kid. Yeah, loved those books as a kid. And so the guy that wrote them, his name's Donald J. Sobel, he passed away last year. And so I wrote, I wrote a – honestly, it was basically an obituary. But I wrote a column about Donald J. Sobel and Encyclopedia Brown and what it meant to me when I was a kid. Like in that, and that was a column that never occurred to me up until the day he passed away, and I was just like, oh. Then I threw a mystery in. Like I threw in an Encyclopedia Brown mystery in, uh. you know, um, into, the, into, the, into the story, that there was one fact that was wrong, and at the end of the column, like after I got off to, uh, all the fantasy baseball stuff, like I explained the answer, you know, sort of like what, you know, he did. Like the answer was always at the end of the book, right, you know. Right. Um, and so, but like that was like fun. Like, but I mostly just talked about, you know, that book's influence on me and, like, what I was like as a kid. And, like, I don't know, like, 
sometimes, listen, make no mistake, there are definitely weeks where I'm just like, ooh, boy, I'm struggling for something today. But I don't know, I just keep finding stuff. Eventually I'll run out of stuff. But, you know, new experiences happen to me, and I'll, like, I'll explain stuff. And, like, uh, like last year, like I mentioned, like one com that I got, I got into a car accident into a, um, in a parking lot, and the woman went absolutely crazy. It was a fender bender. And I, I mean, like, literally, like, it was a scrape the size of a dime on her, on her bumper. Like, you know, we were going to a parking lot. I just, I basically pulled out of a lot and I, and, uh, you know, I, I pulled, I pulled out of my parking space too close. It was a tight parking lot and I, I scraped her bumper and there was like literally about a dime sized, whatever. And I, you know, I made a mistake and I like, you know, um, you know, I, I was leaving her a note when she came out of the store she was in. And so we talked and, you know, and I'm, and so anyway, like I talked about the whole thing and like, she ends up calling 911, like, the woman just goes crazy. And so I talked about all that, you know, like, you know, that's something that happens today. Like, so we keep living our lives and, and that sort of stuff. I will say this, and I'll say this to your listeners. If you ever read me and you, you see me print hate mail, that's a week where I have nothing because that's one thing I can always do. That's the easiest go-to in the world. There's I'm always gonna, hate mail. And you just, I just print the funniest hate mail and I come up with funny responses to it. That's my go-to. I've got nothing this week. And you Let don't think it brings too mail. much negativity to you? Like, People will start sending you more hate mail and hating you more. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's no question. It definitely feeds on itself, and I've noticed that there, that because people just like to. I remember one time I'll never forget this. One guy sent me like, he's just insane, and like he sent me like five or six different emails, each one worse than the one before about just what a horrible human being I was and how he hoped I'd die and blah 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 and all. This. So it was like crazy. Like it was just truly insane, and so I. I did a column where I sort of had his email strewn throughout the column. Like, you know, I'd do an email from him and then a couple more hate me emails and then I'd come back to one of his and like, you know, so uh, throughout I the love column. This idea. I'm going to steal it. Right. Feel free. I'm so going to steal it and not pay you $3 million. Dollars. Right. So anyway, so that guy, um, that guy then, you know, and I think I really embarrassed him. Like, and I put his full name in the column, you know, as it was printed. And my feeling is, is that someone reads that and just like, oh, I know that guy. And I'm just like, dude, what's wrong with you? Are you in hinge? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'd be embarrassed if, like, seeing, you know, like, I write something out of passion, anger. I'm all angry about, you know, my team loss, and I take it out on the guy that recommended somebody that didn't go off the way he expected him to. And then, you know, whatever, a week later you read it, you know, or in some cases like a month later, and you're like, oh, wow, I sound like a real idiot. So that's what my, my thought process is, is that, that, that they'll be embarrassed. And the guy sends him an email the next day. After the column appears, he's like, dude, I can't believe you printed my emails. That's so awesome. I'm kind of a minor celebrity around here. <laughs> and he, was, he was, like, thrilled. And, like, to me, I'm like, you could be crazy. I mean, like, he looks like such a raving lunatic. So now I change the names. I see. I you print don't the wanna, columns, you don't but I completely change much. the names so they don't get any joy out of, you know. Right. So, so okay, so you're on Cold Pizza. You're on all these ESPN shows. Uh, you know, ESPN is clearly taking an interest in you. Yeah, I mean, basically what happened, and this is a piece of good advice, is like, like, I'm sort of like, uh, one piece of advice I got early on was sort of fake it till you make it, which I think is a great piece of advice. So I was doing, um, I was doing, you know, whatever, a weekly segment on ESPN uh, radio, you know, maybe two segments a week, but, you know, it certainly wasn't a huge part of it. But anyway, so I go to Cold Pizza, and I pitch them the idea of doing a weekly fantasy segment. And I say, look, I'm already in this family. I'm already doing these things for, you know, ESPN Radio in L.A. Like, ah, well, if he's already doing ESPN Radio in L.A., sure, we'll take a shot on you. And then I met somebody from ESPN News who 
seen the con- who'd seen the cold pizza thing and liked it. And I'm just like, look, I'm already doing something from cold pizza and ESPN radio. You know, I'm already in the family. Why don't I do something for you guys? Okay. And then I met somebody from ESPN the magazine, and I'm like, look, I'm doing stuff for ESPN News, Cold Pete's, and ESPN Radio in L.A. Why don't I write a magazine column for you guys? I'm already in the family. Okay. And I just sort of kept, you know, uh, you know. That's perfect. That, that's right. and then, how it and works. It's how it works. And then, like, they each, they all liked me, and I did good work, and I was, you know, nice and easy to work with and everything like that. And then eventually, basically, all that led to a, um, in 2006, uh, they were launching something called the Fantasy Show. It was going to be a weekly half-hour fantasy football show. Ron Jaworski um, was going to be the X's and O's guy, and they needed someone to be the fantasy guy. And I'd already been doing all this stuff, so they had me in for a tryout, and they liked me. And so in that show, ended up not going, but they liked the work I did on that show. And so they were basically like, look, fantasy football's big enough, and... Um, you know, we think uh, we we really like the work that you do, so we want to. Uh, we'd like to, you know, move you out to Connecticut, and and uh, we want to buy your website, move you out to Connecticut, and, and make you our senior fantasy analyst. Like, you know, where do I sign? Oh, that's great. So, and this is when also they bought talented Mr. Roto. So they bought talented Mr. Roto in in uh, the summer of late late 2006. Okay, so, so now... it was very quick. I got very lucky, you know, I mean, because I really only started the site in 2004, and I really didn't start going full-time at it till 2005. So basically like a year and a half, you know, I killed myself for a year and a half, but, uh, you know, at that point, like, it ended up working out. And we won a bunch of industry awards, and we had a very fanatical fan base. And this goes to, like, brand trust, brand aware and brand trust. So I was doing everything. I was, in addition to doing all the stuff for ESPN, I was... We were giving columns to SportsIllustrated.com, to CBSSports.com, to uh, MLB.com. I, I spent two years with the NBA doing all the stuff for NBA.com and NBA TV and working for them. The NBA is awesome to work for. I love the NBA. Um, and so, you know, all these things sort of happened, and in fact, how I ended up getting slight detour, but um, the person that was running the, the fantasy show, the one with Ron Jaworski, happened to be friends with the person that was my boss at NBA, and they were talking about, oh, what are you working on? I'm doing this fantasy show. We're trying to find a fantasy guy. My boss at the NBA was like, oh, you should meet our fantasy guy. He's great. And so that, you know, that helped smooth it, and then they found out, oh, you're already doing stuff with cold pizza and everything. Like, so... It all sort of very so serendipitous. It helps, and, it helps to be everywhere, to be like the wall of sound. Like everywhere people look, they see you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because and you never know. Like this is a big thing that I always, I always stress to people that are sort of starting out and that kind of stuff. You never know who somebody knows. Like for example, like it would never occur to me that the way to get a fantasy football job was through the NBA, working for the NBA. But that was one of the things that happened. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, that if it wasn't for me and the experience I had with the NBA, I don't know if ESPN takes the full plunge on me. Right. But, you know, I got a good recommendation from the NBA, and they were very gracious and, and you know, um, uh, in terms of that and, and, uh, and helping me sort of do that. You know, it's something like the fact that I'd worked for a big brand like the NBA and been on well, the Well, also it's TV. all about relationships, too. Like, they improve their relationship with the NBA, perhaps. Through yeah. you. Oh, no, 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 no question about it, obviously. And, you know, ESPN airs NBA games, and we're – you know, uh, we have a great relationship with the NBA. But uh, but the other thing is, like, for example, I'll give you this example I always give. So if you wanted to be, say you wanted to be a TV editor, 
say you wanted, you know, that was your dream. You wanted to be an editor in television. It would never occur to you to reach out to me. Um, why would I ever talk to the fantasy sports guy at ESPN, right? Um, except here's the thing. My college roommate, one of my best friends in the world, is basically one of the main guys that um, he's like the number two guy at Warner Brothers Television, like one of the biggest producers of television shows in the world in post-production. Like, so he, you know, he hires, I don't know how many, 50 editors a year, 100 editors a year. I mean, like, like so, like, if, if I were to meet some college kid and he said to me, my dream is to be a TV editor, you know, you can't help me. It's like, well, actually, I could. Like, if I liked the kid and I was impressed with him, I'd call Chris, you know, my college roommate, and be like, dude, I need you to meet with somebody. Okay. Same thing. Like, if you wanted to get into the fantasy sports industry, it wouldn't occur to you to meet with, you know, a senior vice president of post-production at Warner Brothers. But actually, that would get you to me fairly easily. You know what I mean? So, like, you never know who people know. And so when you meet people, it's always good in terms of networking. A, be nice to everyone and be helpful to everyone. And, and B, like, just never assume that just because somebody's in one, one discipline that they wouldn't know somebody else. In you fact, I mean? it's often like, bad to approach, let's say I wanted to break into fantasy sports. It might be a bad idea to directly approach you because you probably have so many people approaching you. Better to just use, you know, build my network, use my network to kind of, because you want social proof. You want, oh, right. my friend recommends this guy. That's actually much better than someone directly approaching you. Yeah, it's not bad to approach me, but yeah, I mean, I, I get, I'm sure you get this too. I mean, I, I probably get five to ten emails a week from somebody that say, you know, either emails or tweets or reach out to me somehow, Facebook message, something, somebody from somebody saying, I'm, I'm in high school, I'm in college, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in an insurance company, I'm a 35-year-old guy at an insurance company, but I hate my job and I love my, I love fantasy sports the way you do and I want to do, like, all some version of, I want to do what you do or I currently do what you do at, like, some small site, but I don't make a full-time living at it. How do I make a full-time living at it? Will you read my blog? Will you read my articles? Will you give me feedback? Can you help me out? And I would love nothing more to help them all out. I don't have the time. I just don't have the time. Do you even you know, do you respond to all the emails? I Honestly, I don't. I would love to say that I do, but I don't. I try to when I can, but I don't, make, I don't get all of them. Um, some of them... I respond to them if I, it's fun, you know, it's funny, like, I, I have a, I have a file, <laughs> just, I don't know if you care about this, but you asked. So, I, I do, because I, I get so many emails, and I feel really bad when I can't respond to all of yeah, them, but and often, I, do too. I, I, do often too, I just but, can't, because it's a, it's a matter of, do I spend the next hour writing my own stuff that maybe 100,000 people will see, as opposed to right. r responding to one email where... You know, I might not be helping as many people. Well, ex that's exactly right. I mean, and, and for me, it's even tough. You know, I have five kids now. Um, you know, you where have the five story kids? Is, I have what five the hell kids happened now. to not wanting to have kids? Well, never said that I was the one that didn't want to have kids. But anyway, um, uh, so regardless. But well, yes, I married. Um, I I moved. To, I moved to ESPN. You know, ultimately. So in 2007, I get. Um, uh, I get the whatever late 2006 2007. I get the full time job offer and the sale of the website to ESPN, and I come there and I, I do all this thing. And so, 
Um, anyway, so I ended up uh, meeting my wife, my now wife, and I'm single and divorced, um, coming to ESPN. Here at ESPN, I ended up meeting my um, now wife, and uh, she had also been divorced. So it's a second marriage for both of us. She has three three boys from a previous marriage, and I love her boys. And so we ended up getting married, so I'm a stepfather. And then uh, my wife and I had twin girls about uh, two and a half years ago. Wow. So yeah, five kids. So that keeps you pretty busy. So you can't you can't do. Oh, I'm, I'm like a bad than... sitcom. I'm like I'm like you know it's like he was single. You know he's a single dude, and now he's got five kids. Like I mean literally like instant family. Um, it's uh, so 180 degrees, but it's awesome. It's chaos, but it is uh, it's awesome chaos. That's great. But, so so now basically you have full family life. You've got your dream job. You've got the fantasy life, which you which you wrote about. Right. What's, uh, what's next? Oh boy. Um. Not that anything has to be next ever. You could be no, happy with right I know. Right but there's now. always challenges and that kind of stuff. I mean, there's there's definitely some stuff that I'm working on. Um, I mean, including the paperback of Fantasy Life. We should talk about the book and and one and because uh, yes. it's interesting because I don't know that the that uh, we've really given a full picture of what a, a fair picture of what the book is about. But so the paperback comes out of Fantasy Life, and you know, there's some other things in the fantasy sports industry that I'm that I'm interested in doing, and you know. I want to continue to promote fantasy sports. I always joke that, you know, until every man, woman, and child in America is playing fantasy sports, my job is not done. How come there so, can't be, like, uh, fantasy chess? You know, there's lots of uh, chess teams and stuff in, in, the, in the chess world. That's another a whole, a whole avenue you haven't even approached yet on ESPN. Well, you're joking, but the truth is, is that if there's a way to keep score, there's a way to play a fantasy version of it. In fact, I've started up a... Um, and we're doing a, a overhaul now, but you, if you want, you can play. There's kind of a bare-bones site now called summermovieleague.com, and it's basically it's fantasy movies. Uh, it's like the Hollywood so, Stock Exchange used to be back in the late 90s. Yes, except this is actually good. Well, what's that .com called? No, this one's called summermovieleague.com. Basically, all, it's fantasy movies. Like you, So for the summer movies, basically you pick movies, and based on how well how much money those movies, you pick movies for your fantasy studio and how well, how much money those make at the actual box office, how much money they make for your fantasy studio. And you compete against others. So it's, you know, it's just a fun way to like, you know, draft movies. Every Monday morning, you know, everyone looks at the box office, who did what this weekend. So it's, um... You should do, you should do though, um, uh, revenues per person who paid for a ticket because then you can get the R-rated movies in there. Because R-rated <laughs> usually doesn't do as well in the box office. It's just straight, like, you know, G movies. Um, look at you. Well, that's um, getting a little bit more uh, more in depth. We're we're doing a simple simple game, but uh, okay. maybe for version two. Fair enough. We'll uh, we'll get uh, into that. But anyway, back to the um, uh, the people that that you know email about advice. So it's a couple. No, things. no, no. So back I to I want to know about the paperback fantasy life. Like, uh, okay. is there going to be changes? And when's that coming out? Comes out. I don't know that we've set a release date, but I suspect it'll be very similar to last year, so which was released in the middle of July. There are no changes. There are. There's about ten thousand more new words. So I added a, a couple of bonus chapters. So there's ten thousand additional words. Um, what are the bonus chapters about? Uh, one is about. Um, I did a. Because uh, I read the hardcover, and I have to highly recommend it. Like anybody interested in either fantasy sports or. Uh, reinvention of career, and I'm going to talk about this also in the intro, Matthew. So, so it's definitely going to be highly recommended book here. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, the thing that I love is that you love the book, even though you're not a fantasy sports player, because throughout the book there's a lot of my story, much more in-depth than what we've gotten into here. So sort of my, my journey of first fantasy, career, first fantasy league at 14 years old, winding up all the way to ESPN, married with kids and the whole thing as ESPN senior fantasy analyst. So it's about um, – so it's all about that, so that sort of journey and arc. But in between are a bunch of funny stories, funny, crazy, outrageous, uplifting, heartwarming stories from the world of fantasy sports. Like there's a league um, in Omaha, Nebraska called the Tattoo League. And like the loser of the league has to get a tattoo chosen by the winner. Like not some henna tattoo that fades in a few weeks, like a permanent rest of your life tattoo. And like last year, uh, the guy that lost had to get a tattoo of Justin Bieber's face. <laughs> right? It says it says fantasy loser hashtag YOLO swag. <laughs> right? And like you don't have to be a fantasy fan, you know, or even play fantasy sports to know like okay, that's funny. Like a guy having to get a Justin Bieber tattoo, a 25-year-old dude in Omaha, Nebraska having to get a tattoo of Justin Bieber's face on his leg. That's just funny. And there's and, just a lot of stories really like that. that seriously, it shows that uh this is people are passionate about this. Oh, it's a huge passion thing, but but more importantly, it's sort of like what I've done with my career, or tried to do with my career, which is to make fantasy more mainstream and more accessible. And so, to your point, like, you don't play fantasy sports, you don't get the references, and yet you fully enjoyed the book because you don't have to play fantasy sports to understand uh, to understand the, the stories in the book. The, the stories are ultimately about people um, right. and, the, and the people that play, and so they're fun. So, in terms of what is in this chapter, a um, couple of things. So, when the Richie Incognito, Jonathan Martin thing happened, you know, the whole bullying thing in the, in, in, um, in the NFL happened this past year? I don't know about it. I don't, I don't even follow any news on sports at all. So there was, a, there was an NFL player named Richie Incognito uh, who was an offensive lineman from the Miami Dolphins. There was another offensive lineman named Jonathan Martin. Jonathan Martin, pro football player, left the team. And just for personal reasons, then it came out later that the reason he left the team is he felt he was bullied by Richie Incognito. And a lot of text messages have come out, and it's been a, it's been a huge story in the sports world, and, and someone I think just in mainstream news in terms of it, it appears, I wasn't there, but by the ruling of the NFL, they had a special investigator look at it. But basically, yes, Richie Incognito, along with some other people, was, uh, was really cruel to Jonathan Martin and, and bullied him. How do you him. bully a football player? Well, that's sort of been the big debate, and so anyway, I mean, I don't want to derail this whole podcast. But anyway, but yes, Google Richie Incognito, and you'll you'll get a, right. you'll get an earful. So, but very you know derogatory texts and comments, and being forced to pay money they didn't want to, and you know talking about his mother and his you know and uh, and and his race, and just you know uh, Incognito is white, Martin is black. It, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> so anyway. In response to that, when that story came out, I wrote a column about my own experiences with bullying. And I got a tremendous amount of response from that column. Just more, uh, you know, more positive response than I've ever gotten for anything. So the chapter is that column. One chapter is that column and then all the responses around that column. And just sort of all about sort of what that meant to me and tying that into the book and, you know, and, and certain things that probably may not have made sense when you read the book or adding more context to certain things from the book now that you knew this story about me. So there's that. 
there's a chapter on an update of the Tattoo League. So the Tattoo League that I talked about, the Justin Bieber thing, they've now had another year with another tattoo. So an update on those guys. Plus, once that story came out, I got tons of crazy punishments from leagues around the world uh, in terms of stuff that they make their losers do. So it's a bunch of pictures and, and funny stories from that, just you know, new punishments and new traditions that have come out since the book. And then another chapter is just basically what happened to me once the book was published, because I had this amazing, this incredible James six-year, six-month run, and just of, were unbelievable experiences in terms of going out on book tour and some funny photos from the book tour and what happened, and I got to go on the Howard Stern show and what that experience was like. What you know, was it like? Because obviously he was a huge influence on you. It was amazing. Like, I can't do it justice here. I mean, I, I wrote about it. It was, um, it was amazing. I mean, it was a bucket list moment for me. I mean, you know, I'm a massive fan of the guy for more than two decades, um, and it was a huge bucket list moment. So I talk about, like, just what it took for me to get on the show and then being on the show and what it was like meeting Howard, which was great. And, you know, I was nervous. Here's one thing that I don't talk about in the book that I can talk with you that I think is interesting. Have you – I'm sure you have, right, because just in your world, and you know, you've, led a, you've led, like me, a very, you know, kind of um, – uh, different life that, you know, had a lot of different, you know, sort of paths and avenues and, and areas that you've kind of dealt into. And so have you ever had an experience where you were a fan of somebody and then you met that person in real life and then you suddenly weren't a fan of them anymore after you met them in real life? Uh, yes, actually. And I have to say that happens fairly frequently. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say fairly but sometimes, frequently sometimes, for me. Sometimes, though, they turn into friends. Like, I become, I go from fan to friend. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, well, good for you. I that has not. Sometimes that's happened for me. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I meet them and I remain a fan. Um, uh, there are times when I've met somebody I'm not a fan of and I've become a fan. Um, but there have definitely been a couple of handfuls of times where I have approached somebody you know, at least maybe one or two handfuls, where I've approached somebody that I was a fan of, that I've read their work or I've listened to them on the radio or watched them on TV or seen their movies or what have you, um, or seen them play sports. I'm a fan of this person, and I approach them and express my fandom, and they're rude. They're, I've either caught them on a bad day or they're just, they're just not a nice person or whatever, and I've left. After that interaction, I am no longer a fan of that person. And, and in what way are they rude? I just, uh, just so, so I know never to be rude this way to anybody. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's all different, you know, and that kind of stuff. I mean, here's an example. I, I, went, to the Howard Stern, I went to the Howard Stern birthday party, and there was a person there that my wife is a huge fan of. And we approached this person during a commercial break, and we just said, like, hey, we just want to come over and say hi. We're both huge fans. My wife, blah, blah, blah. And the person looked at me and just said, whatever, and turned away. Oh, my God. That's pretty bad. So, right. I'm no longer a fan of this person, neither is my wife. So, I mean, I think it's just being disinterested or just being, like, being quick or being brushed, you know, and that kind of stuff. All this person had to say is like, oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And that would have been it. 30 yeah. seconds. You know, we just wanted to shake her hand and tell her we were fans of this person and tell her we were fans of her. And, you know, and who, especially because who was that she? particular... You, you could say the name here. You can out her here. I don't want to get into it. I, All right. I'll, I'll be nicer than that. Here's the thing. The, the other thing is, is that especially because it was at that venue at the Howard Stern birthday party where everyone was in a good mood. It was a great event, and everyone there was a celebrity. 
I mean, you had to have been somebody to get into that party somehow, some way. You know what I mean? Not that I'm a celebrity or anything like that. And there's certainly people, you know, that, that weren't quote-unquote famous that wouldn't get recognized that were there. But, like, everyone was there, at least in the area where I was and where this celebrity was, was, you know what I mean? Like, this person wasn't anywhere close to being the biggest star there. They shouldn't have, um, you know, they had no reason to pull attitude, if that makes any right. sense. You know right. what I mean? Like, really? Well, just in general, um, it's just rude. Well, it's just rude. Like, I mean, right. I mean, so, like, you know, I, I mean, people come up to me, they're fans of me, and I, I try to be very, very polite. And, you know, I met a, a lot of people at that party that night that were unbelievably gracious and cool and fun. And this, just one person, there was just one person that was just kind of a jerk. But whatever. So my point is, the whole reason I brought that up is, is that I was really nervous because I sort of didn't want to ruin my experience with Howard. Like, I love listening to Howard Stern. I do it every morning. And if, he w- if like, I went in and I met him and he was, like, a jerk or he wasn't cool or whatever, he- I was nervous, right? Because, like, I didn't want that experience ruined for me. Like, I have a friend who's a diehard Springsteen fan and has had numerous opportunities to meet Springsteen and has turned them down every single time. He's like, because he, he knows a couple of people that know Bruce. And, I mean, he's like a crazy hardcore fan, and he's got a, a, a big, important job. And he just basically said, I don't want to meet Bruce. He's told me. He says, I don't want to meet Bruce. I'm like, really? Like, you love this guy. He's like, yeah. He's like, but he's like, he's like here's the thing. What am I going to say to Bruce that he hasn't heard a million times before? And he says, and what if he's a jerk? Like, I love going to Springsteen concerts and listening to his music. I don't need to meet the man. That's like, really I, want honest, to keep, I want to keep that pure. Like, I just enjoy that so much. I, don't, I want to keep it pure, and I don't want to risk anything ruining that, which I sort of get, right? And so, you know, obviously it was a dream come true to be on Howard's show, but I was super nervous about, like, what if, you know, after I have the interview where I meet the guy, like, what if, you know, what if he's not nice? What if he makes fun of fantasy sports? What if he goofs on me? Like, what if... And, you know, so that was, I was really nervous about that. And what was amazing to me, James, is actually the opposite happened. I didn't think it was possible. I actually became a bigger fan of the guy huh. after I met him. Because there's only, it won't, there's, um, when I met him, like, so we do the interview. I don't meet him before the interview. I come in and we do the whole interview and he ends up bringing my wife in. He's like, he's making fun of me because he's like, ah, oh, your wife's too hot for you, which she is, by the way. And like, just, so we just had a lot of fun and like, you know, and I'm in a fantasy football league with all the Stern Show guys with like Baba Booey and like a lot of the guys on that are characters or you know, players on the show. Huh. Howard doesn't play fantasy football, but a lot of the guys on a show do, and I'm in a league with them, and so that's one of the ways I got in. And so some of the guys in the league came in, we talked about some of the issues in the league, and we had fun back and forth. And So it was a great appearance, and, uh, and I was on cloud nine. You know, it was very surreal for me. Like, I couldn't believe I was actually there. But then after the show, after the segment, they break for commercial, and he comes out, and we shake hands, and he takes pictures with me, he takes pictures with me and my wife, and whole thing and this has only happened to me twice before but have you ever met somebody that is so charismatic and so big and they just focus completely on you they're not distracted by anything else they just completely like they're right there with you they're staring at you and they're completely on on you and you feel like there's nothing else in the world just you and this person have you ever had that experience i have yeah like i've had it three times in my life and um it was unreal like, um, so, so he basically 
I mean, how, he, you were already such a fan that how do you know it wasn't just the kind of overload of charisma, you know, just from your, your mental image of him? I mean, it could be, except for the fact that I, I mean, I, I've, I've met enough celebrities, I've met enough people that I'm fans of, and maybe not somebody that I'm as much, I'm as big a fan as I am of Howard, but I've met enough people where it's just like you can sort of tell the BS. And he, by the way, the other thing is I had no expectations. I assumed it would just be, all right, thanks, let's take a quick picture, we'll goodbye. But I just started talking to him about photography, and I specifically chose subjects that I knew he was interested in, but like, you know, because he's a big photographer, and I, you know, we talked about America's Got Talent, which is, you know, he's a judge on, whatever, but he was just like really engaged in me, and he was like, hey, that was a good segment, and blah, 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 and, you know, and my wife was telling, you know, him what, like, I meant to me, and he was just like, he was laughing, and like... He was just, he was totally engaged. And it was amazing to me that he was that engaged because, again, he's only got like five minutes before his next, you know, hour of entertaining that he has to do. He's at work. And so um, the, t- the other two times, and I think this will tell you, um, the other two times I've experienced that, my very first job in Hollywood, um, I was the stage PA, which means I'm basically the assistant for George Carlin on the George Carlin show. Hmm. So it's George one, Carlin. One of my assistant. favorites. Uh, he was amazing. He's, I was, so it was George Carlin's assistant for um, about a year. And so, um, in addition, uh, one night, I was, a couple of years ago, I was driving back um, with a friend from, from ESPN, uh, from New York to, uh, to Connecticut, and we stopped at Chappaqua, uh, where my friend lives, and we decided to go get a bite to eat. And in this small little Italian restaurant where we decided to get a bite to eat was Bill Clinton. Um, having dinner with friends. He lives there right? Um, uh, in the city, so it's not unusual to see him there, but it was just whatever. It's like 9.30 in a half-deserted Italian restaurant, and there's Bill Clinton. I'm like, oh, my God. And so me and my friend are like, come on, we, we, you know, and we weren't going to bother him, and then, like, a couple other people approached him, and he seemed, you know, genuinely happy to talk. He was done with dinner. He was just hanging out. And um, so, like, on our way out, we were like, okay. And, you know, so I met Clinton. Right? And same sort of thing. Totally focused. So Carlin and Clinton were the other two guys that were exactly like Howard, where it was just like, you, like when you meet them and they just stare you in the face and they're so charismatic and they're so focused on you, like you get it and it's just like you're, it's, you know, it was I just unreal. I wonder if it's because part of their career is that they have to basically assimilate all of this information from the masses and then translate it uh, out in such a way that you know, it becomes entertaining and informative and uh, uh, enhances their, you know, bond with their their communities. You know, all of them, whether you're a comedian or a president or a radio personality, you kind of have to ta- assimilate all this, you know, you, ha- you have to learn from everybody around you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's partially, but I think it's also how they're built. I mean, I've met, um, I can't say that I've met other presidents before. Um, Nixon, but I've certainly no. met other politicians uh, before, and I've met I've certainly met comedians that are as famous as George, if not bigger. Um, you know, um, and you know, I've met. I mean, Howard's very famous, but I've met people more famous than Howard. You know what I mean? And like, um, they're not like that. You know. Um, I mean, it's not that they're bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's a special sort of thing, right? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting because you could definitely you could definitely see it in all of them. Like, I've I mean, never like, I've met, met David Letterman. Like, here's a, here's an example. I've met David Letterman. I mean, that and David Letterman also a talk show host, also insanely famous, and he was very nice. 
Um, uh, he was very nice. I, I am still a fan of David Letterman after having met him, but I wouldn't, con- you know, he wasn't focused on me and he wasn't charismatic in the way that, you know, those three guys were. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, I will, um, uh, I'm trying to think what, what to take away from that other than, I mean, obviously these guys have built their careers on their charisma and it's, it's been yeah. very useful for them. I don't know. I heard Jim Henson was like that too, supposedly. Mm-hmm. I never met him before he passed away, but like supposedly Jim Henson was like that. Like you just feel like you're the only person he's talking to, and he's not worried about anything else. Hmm. Hmm. Like I don't know. I've I've been at a lot of parties where you meet somebody, and they're sort of like they're talking to you, but they're sort of glancing around, looking at for other people, and who else is here, and who else do I need to talk to, and you know what I mean? Like, and those three people who are super important, um, you know, and have lots of people that want their attention just don't care and they're just you know what i mean like i don't know it's really amazing i don't know that there's something to take away about it but it was just like it was really sort of fascinating to me and interesting that they're so i wanted to give you a howard too, like, stern my experience on howard stern anecdote that doesn't appear like in the book or anything like but i talk about the whole visit and everything like that and um uh it, but anyway so it was amazing and it wasn't just it wasn't just the stern show but it was just the tour and just all the publicity i did and just different different experiences i had that were like sort of mind-blowing for one way or the other really cool i think it's a fun it's a really fun chapter and some really funny uh pictures and that kind of stuff too from the tour and from so, the book tour. So, so i have to ask you now i've I, your 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 twitter account you know you have about six hundred thousand followers yep. and your last whole bunch of tweets uh were uh, all about u.s air yes just to just to kind of like finalize the final I've, I've taken up a lot of your time i know and i really appreciate you coming okay. on the show this has been really great um, but what the hell did U.S. Air do to you? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, here's what U.S. Air did to me. So I left, I, I went to the NBA All-Star Game this past weekend. So I'm in New Orleans, and and we're flying back. We literally missed the, the game Thursday, Sunday night to to fly back because, long story not interesting, but we had a babysitter with our with our twin daughters, and, and the babysitter had to leave on Monday morning for another job so we had to be back Sunday night because we didn't have anyone to watch our kids so we you know and we left that day because obviously we're worried about the snow and there's tons of bad weather here on the east coast fine I have an 11 a.m. flight from New Orleans to Charlotte and then Charlotte uh, up to Hartford Uh, we live in Connecticut so I get so at I don't know I want to say 8 a.m. 8 a.m. I get a call from U.S. Airways saying that my flight has been delayed from 11 a.m. till 12.30, which means I'm going to miss my connection in Charlotte to Hartford. That's fine. It happens. I call and make a reservation on a later flight from Charlotte to Hartford. Okay, fine. Then after I do that, I want to say 8.20, the flight, the 11 a.m. flight from Charlotte has been canceled. Okay, fine. So now I call back again, and I get a reservation. Turns out there is a 9.10 a.m. flight. Uh, leaving New Orleans to Charlotte. So there's an earlier flight, which the previous person hadn't told me about. Okay, fine, whatever. So I go, great, get me on that flight. So I have a reservation on that flight. So now I haul butt to the airport, right? Um, Haul butt, return the rental call, get in, get through security, run, you know, run down the thing. I get there. I literally get there at, um, uh, I'm sorry, it's a 9.40 flight. The flight leaves at 9.40 a.m. I get there at 9.10, right when they're starting to board. I'm like one of the first people in line. And I get up, and they say, you can't board. 
I'm like, what do you mean I can't board? They said, it says your ticket hasn't been paid. I'm like, yes, my ticket's been paid. What are you talking about? Of course my ticket's been paid. And they're like, sorry, sir. You know, I'm like, I have a reservation on this flight. And I'm like, yes, sir, I know you have a reservation on this flight. You have a reserved seat, but you haven't paid for the ticket. And I'm like, I paid for the ticket for the 11 a.m. flight. That's been canceled. I'm just transferring. Like, sorry, sir, I'll deal with you. She goes, I'll deal with you later. I got to board this flight. I'll deal with you later. She's not very nice. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So she pushes me up to the side. They board the entire plane. It's now nine. By the time they get everyone on board, it's 935. She looks at my thing. She taps a couple things, and she says, oh, nope, still not paid for. Sorry, sir. Flight's got to leave. I'm like, what are you talking about? My flight, I said, I, I went to the, I got the new ticket from the ticket counter, from the, you know, when, I, when you first walk in before you go through security. And she goes, well, that person, the, no, this is just a boarding pass. It's not a paid ticket. What are you talking about? Like, I, I've never you know, heard I, of that I, happening. I'm, explain, like, I'm explaining this. Like, I, I don't understand what's happening. I called. I have a reservation. I have a paid ticket. I paid for this ticket a month ago. Like, what is going on? She goes, sorry, sir, we have to leave the plane. I, like, I should be on that plane. And she goes, I don't have time to fix this. The plane's got to leave. I've got to get this plane out of here. The plane leaves. Oh, my God. The plane leaves. I would have been so and upset. I would hang have been on. Oh, it gets worse. So then, turns out apparently, and I don't understand all airline speak, but apparently whoever did this at U.S. Airways somehow didn't, something got screwed up on computers, or the person, I think the person at the front of the desk, the, at the front of the airport, for, somehow didn't I, there didn't marry my reservation with a ticket confirmation number or something like that. That basically they made a reservation for me on the on the on the early flight, but they basically didn't pull over the ticket confirmation number or something like that. If this makes any sense, I, they tried to explain it to me sixteen different ways. I, I still don't totally understand it, but basically somehow it didn't get married in their system. So after they dug around for a little while, they realized, oh, oh, you did have a paid ticket on this flight. So I, I hope they gave you like a lifetime uh, free pass. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's what they do. They say we can book you on, a, uh, we'll book you on the next flight out that we have room on, which is at 6 p.m. tonight. It's now 9.55 in the morning, 10 a.m. or whatever at this point. Again, had a reservation, had a paid ticket on a flight, you know. Had a boarding pass. Had a boarding pass. And their boarding pass showed up and saying that I had not paid for the ticket because somebody at U.S. Airways did not, you know, hit the right button when making okay. that reservation. So, so here's the question. 600,000 yeah. followers on Twitter. You did 50 tweets bashing U.S. Air. Did they respond to your – is there social media, you know, did they have it together? Did they respond yeah, to I your got, tweets? I, we got U.S. Air fail trending on Twitter. That's great. I was happy about. Um, they did. Uh, they ended up, and they ended up, you know, I got, I talked to a supervisor who apologized to me, um, you know, said you did nothing wrong. I'm like, I know. And I said, what is U.S. Airways going to do to make this up to me? And he says, well, we're going to get you to Hartford. That's not good enough. No, I, I, that's what I said. He says, well, it's all I can do. He's like, maybe someone from the corporate office, but all I can do here is I can just get you on the next available flight. And they found a... You know, they found on a different carrier, a different flight, you know. And so I ended up getting home, like, whatever, four hours later, you know, whatever. So I get, you know, by the time I, it was a horrible day of travel. So, and they, they just never, they, have they no, ignored? No, so they, your... they, the, the, the at U.S. Airways account, <laughs> they're so screwed. 
screwed up. At USA Airways account, like after, you know, my my Twitter rant, um, uh, said, uh, you know, said, you know, Matthew, please follow us. Will you please follow us and please DM us your um, confirmation number will be helpful. So then I go to DM them my confirmation number. They're not following me. <laughs> so I retweeted that, and I said, guys, you can't, I have to, you have to follow me for me to be able to DM you. So then they follow me. Okay, we're following you. Sorry, Matthew. So then I tweet them the, the information, and they write back, and they say, you know, looks like you're on the, you know, the first available flight. Um, you know, you can fly standby, and, you know, hopefully somebody cancels, but... They say, but uh, but we have you know we have sent this on to our corporate office, and uh, they will review it and and be in touch with you. So whatever that was Sunday, no one's been in touch with me since. It's whatever we're taping this on a Tuesday, so we'll see. I'm going to give them seven days. I'm going to give them a week, um, and if they haven't responded to me, then I'm going to post. I'm going to tweet out their uh, their DMs. Get the DMs CEO on, on your show. Get the CEO on TV. Yeah, the, you know, I mean, like we got to show not, the power of social media here. The power of social media, I don't know that I'll do it on, on ESPN Airwaves. I can't imagine ESPN would want that. Um, but it is the power of social media, and um, it really bothered me. Like, it bothered me about, you know, it was unfair. Like, they treated me poorly, and because of their mistake, they, it, it was not only a, it was a mistake, but it was an avoidable mistake, and they didn't want to take that, which happens. People are human, and people make mistakes. That, those are the parts that don't bother me. Um, what bothered me is is that they were rude to me, and then they wouldn't take the time to find it. That they were like, I'll deal, I'm going to get this flight out, and then I'll deal with you. As opposed to holding the flight and figuring it out. You know what I mean? Because they figured it out five minutes after the flight took off. She was just too rushed, and she couldn't be bothered. Yeah, but she should have just she should have uh, respected the boarding pass and assumed that there was going to be some mistake in their computers. Because otherwise, how would you even have printed up a boarding pass? It's impossible. They can, uh, I don't the the person at the front desk. To be perfectly honest, the person at the front desk is the one that made the biggest mistake. The gate agent handled it poorly, but ultimately she didn't do anything wrong. She was doing her job. She had a guy that had her. She had a guy that was trying to board without a paid ticket, as far as she knew. Um, yeah, I guess so. I you know don't what I mean? Know. I think she could have handled it better, and if she'd done a little bit more investigating and hadn't been so quick to get the flight off, it would have been avoided. But ultimately, she was doing her job. It was the guy at the front that screwed up. Yeah, you know they mean? could have and, held the plane, and they could have had on the side a guy looking. Of course, looking, of course. You know, uh, you know, or they should have had another worker there. You know, I, yeah. there was only one person checking everyone in. Like, why is there not two people there so that one person can check everyone in and one person can, you know, handle other issues? Most flights that I take, there are at least two people that are checking people in that yeah, are at the desk. This is why these airlines always gate. go bankrupt. This is why U.S. Air always goes bankrupt. Yeah, it would appear. Um, so anyway, we'll see if they respond to me. Um, you know, uh, but it was, uh, you know, but yeah, you know, I don't know that to answer this, it's, it's interesting, right? So I don't know that I would, uh, I would want to do it on ESPN, but it's the power of social media. And some people were like, most people actually agreed with me. Most people, you know, I had some people unfollow and I had some people say like, we follow you for fantasy advice, not to complain about airlines. But I believe this goes back to the Howard Stern thing. This goes back to how I approach my columns that I, I, I believe that I am the most interesting thing that I can write or talk about. Agree or disagree, you know what I mean? Like, and the people that agree, you follow me, and the people that disagree, don't. Well, but, so that's you, you my have 600,000 followers, so probably a lot of people agree. It, so far, it's going okay. Yeah, yeah. and so, um, 
you know, and I'm close to 300,000 on Facebook, too. And so it'll be, you know, I think we'll get to a million uh, by football season. People tend to unfollow during, you know, yeah. slow times here. But, um, which, you know, is a huge flattering thing to me. It's, you know, it means a great deal to me. Um, but anyway, the reason I brought this all up is that, so my dad, a customer service guru, and goes back to the old website. Remember we were talking about brand aware and brand trust? Sure. So, like, we had tons of different things. But, like, here's one of the biggest examples I always give in terms of brand trust. We had a big thing that said, if you email our website, you will get a response within 24 hours. We guarantee it, 100%. You know, if you have any issues with your credit card, with your subscription, with your, you know, your rankings, whatever, you know, for email us um, at Townsmith Roto, you get a website, you get a return in 24 hours guaranteed. Okay. Internally, the rule for our customer service people was that the response had to be within six hours. So uh, imagine, right, um, that your person, it's, so it's, it's, it's my father's an old Len Berry, Dr. Len Berry uh, trick, under promise, over deliver. So basically, we said, you'll get a response within 24 hours. So you send out a response, you're like, yeah, they'll probably get back to me to, uh, tomorrow. And then they get a response in a couple hours, and they're thrilled. Right. Right? So level set expectations and then exceed those expectations. As opposed to, you know, like with U.S. Airways, we'll see. Like, so U.S. Airways said to me, we are sorry this happened. Uh, we are going to send this on to our customer care team, and uh, a representative will reach out to you. So that is what they've promised me. Let's see if they make good on that promise. I have no expectations that they will. Well, and if so, U.S. Air is listening to this, hopefully, uh, hopefully they, it's another thing pushing them in the right direction. We'll Lifetime see. Lifetime pass for Matthew Barry. Well, it should it should be, I you know what I mean it's it's nice. I got a number of people on on Twitter that said, and I think they're right. They said like, oh, it's nice that they're responding to you. Um, you know, good luck for getting a response if you only have fifty followers or something like that. And I think it's unfortunate, but true. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I'm sure that one of the reasons they responded to me is because like, yes, I have six hundred thousand followers and. Uh, I decided to, I basically said, all right, well, since U.S. Airways has decided to strand me in an airport for a while, let's make this useful. I'll do a, Q, I'll do a, a Twitter Q&A for the next 60 minutes. Use the hashtag, U.S. Airways fail. You know? <laughs> well, you know, I probably got, yes, I probably got you know, 1,500 questions them. in the next, you know, half hour, um, all with that hashtag. And so, right, and started trending. And right. So, you know. It's so unfair. We'll it's unfortunate. So that's well, one of the reasons why I did it. Is like, you know, is hopefully, a I, I, I want to do it because it's what was happening with me, and I I share what's happening with my life, whether it deals with fantasy sports or not. But beyond that, because I wanted to. I mean, I got a number of people that were like, "Yeah, go for it, Matthew." Like, thank you. Like, you're expressing what you know. I can't. You know, U.S. Airways has a lot of people that are not happy with it as an airline. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on. I've I've taken up two hours of your time. This is Cut. great. Fantasy Life, the outrageous, uplifting, and heartbreaking world of fantasy sports from the guy who's lived it. I highly recommend it for a million reasons, uh, and I can't wait for the paperback as well. So, so this is great. Thanks again. Cool. Thank you very much. Well, that's the show for the week. We hope you enjoyed the interview with Matthew Barry. As always, please send us your feedback to feedback at stansberryradio.com, and we'll talk to you guys soon. 
Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique, and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.